This episode is sponsored by Furniture Box. Check them out in the description below. Guys, welcome to the Ground Floor Podcast, the podcast where we are successful people exactly how they did it. Our guest today is Tim Chong, the founder of Yonder, which is a credit card company that requires no credit checks and is aimed at helping as many people as possible get access to a credit card, even if they're in circumstances that might make it difficult to acquire one. How are you doing today, Tim? Great, great. So glad to be here. Yeah, so thanks good, for coming so on. Really really appreciate you, it. Really so it. for anyone that might not know you or know what Yonder is, can you give a little bit of a sort of overview and a background of who you are and what you do? Yeah, so my name's Tim. I'm one of the co-founders and CEO of Yonder. So, you know, our goal is to build a next generation lifestyle credit card for city adventurers all across the world. Yeah, you know, our goal has always been this idea that actually financial products aren't just about the financial products, but about what it allows you to do. And we think Yonder is a really exciting way for you to not just have a incredibly beautifully designed credit card experience, but also use it to discover the best of your cities as well. Mm-hmm. And just out of interest, what were you doing before Yonder? So before that, I was at another startup called ClearScore, okay. and I was head of product there. So I was there for about three and a bit years, and my two co-founders also came from ClearScore as well. Right, okay. And so what made you want to make the transition in starting a credit card company? That's quite a big endeavor. Yeah, I would say um, maybe naivety and a lot of optimism. but. If you go back to sort of my background previously, so ClearScore was uh, UK, a very large consumer credit marketplace. So, um, you know, I think over 15 million now consumers can get the credit score through the product and then they could basically find financial products, whether it's personal loans, credit cards, mortgages, and insurance through the marketplace. And one of the things we found really frustrating though was all the credit cards there were all, quite frankly, pretty average. And we felt like there hadn't been a lot of innovation in that space. So. On the current account side, you had the likes of Monzo, Revolut, Starling, building these incredibly beautiful neobanks. And on the credit card side, you had all the traditional high street banks with very, very, very boring rewards, app experiences from the 80s and 90s. And even the sort of core financial product felt like it came with some of the fundamentals that existed, quite frankly, for like the last 50, 60 years. So we felt like there was an opportunity to create a category leading Mm. fintech that would really disrupt uh, what sort of you know, and really challenge what a credit card experience could really look like for consumers. And so once you saw that gap or potential gap in the market, what was the first step to actually establish whether or not there was a demand for that product? So I think the way I kind of described it was I sort of ran almost like this kind of product process, like a product discovery process. So if you ever worked in product management, before you go and build something, you want to kind of figure out whether there is a market need. And so you run this kind of process called like product discovery. And I used to do this all the time at ClearScore where you'd basically write a document up and say, hey, like, let me like talk about the problem statement. Let me talk about the opportunity. Let me think about uh, what are the kind of things that have to be true for this to be a worthy opportunity. And so it was sort of in the middle of COVID in 2020. I had a lot of spare time on my hands. I had a lot of ideas. And actually in the last sort of five to 10 years, I've had a bunch of startup ideas that I'd always be like, oh, it'd be really nice to do that, but never really put the legs on it. Mm. And I found myself sort of on weekends being like, this is a grand opportunity to go and like put legs on these ideas I've had and because I knew the space really well because you know we would sell quite literally you know hundreds of thousands Mm. of credit cards a year through this this platform uh, I knew the market really well and I saw a lot of the gaps as well consumers had and so I started to go through this process of just literally it's a Google Dropbox paper which I still show the team to this date which is I wrote a problem statement being like you know what are the you know t- traditional credit cards today? I built an archaic credit underwriting. You know they have app experiences from the eighties and nineties. They're designed to screw consumers. You know what if there could be a better way? That was kind of basically 
the right. first sentence, and I still I still have that piece of paper. And then I sort of said, started looking at it, going, okay, what's the market size? Um, what are the current pain points? What do consumers want? And I just started like interviewing lots of cause just people. I found them on quite literally Aussies in London Facebook group. Yeah. Found them through Reddit forums. Found it through just friends of friends, and just started writing out all the things that I felt didn't really work for consumers. And that document just became this working document that I worked on for quite frankly about two, three months to be like, is there something here? Mm. And it was sort of after about two months where I'm like, crap, there could be something here. Mm. And it was at that point where I, you know, basically was also talking to my, my two current co-founders about this idea as well. Cause you know, we'd all worked together for, for many years. We'd all spent way too many times at the pub. Um, my CTO, we'd worked together launching ClearSco in Australia at an Airbnb. And we talked about, Hey, what would we like to start a company together? And so it was sort of this combination of both the, I'd say like the analytical discovery process, but also just the riffing on with mates mm. that get you really excited sure. and the going, what if we could do this? Yeah. You mentioned there that you'd, you'd had quite a few ideas you were kicking around. And I think that's quite a common thing with a lot of sort of budding entrepreneurs. Do you have any advice for someone who might have a sort of a range of different ideas, but not necessarily know which one's worth pursuing and to what extent? So I kept a list of all these ideas on Evernote and I still actually have the original Evernote note for Yonder four and a half years ago before it had even That's so cool. something. And the original idea, I still have the Evernote and it basically said, could you create a credit card that harnessed behavioral economics? So this idea of using behavioral nudges for both for positive rather than for negative. And so traditionally, in my opinion, a lot of credit cards use what we call behavioral economic principles for evil so things like on your credit card statement they'll be like you owe this but your minimum you need to pay is here and they kind of anchor it around your minimum well they do that because you pay the most amount of interest if you pay the minimum and so for me that's like using behavior economics for evil and so literally i wrote could you create a product that would use it for good and so that was literally i didn't do anything with it i just wrote it down and so i did go through just a stage just writing stuff down and i think the act of writing it down one forced me to really think about it a little bit more but also just uh you know, write it down and maybe come back to it six months later. And that's literally what happened. Six months later, I went back to it and I was like, oh, I wrote this down a while back. So I think initially, especially at the early stages, I went to describe them as like seeds or kernels and you don't want to lose them, but not all of them are going to be great. Mm. So you kind of just want to collect them somewhere. I collect them through paper or like on Evernote, but I always say just collect them somewhere. And then eventually, the way I described it, I had an itch where it was this feeling of, I can't not do it. It's the idea you keep coming back to. Yeah. So I think yeah. even before that, even many, many, many years before that, uh, I was really frustrated with my time and expense support. So I worked in management consulting and most of my frustration was I would pay for work expenses on a credit card and then I'd have to fill out a form on SAP to submit my time and expense yeah. report and then keep the receipt to then put in my envelope and then send them off to the sort of finance team to then reimburse yeah, my expenses. Yeah. And I was like... Wouldn't it be so much easier if there was like an app that could do this? And yeah. I actually had this original idea for a corporate card that you could basically just manage your expenses. Now there's now great companies like Playo, Payhawk, yeah. Brex building that. And I had that idea like eight years ago because I was getting really frustrated at my time and expense reports. And so I'd even spent time thinking about this broad space. And I think, you know, fast forward like five, six years later, I was like, hey, maybe my ideas aren't bad or maybe my gut feeling of product problems or user problems isn't bad. And maybe actually there's something here and I should sort of trust my gut a bit more. So almost a bit of it was just like building a bit of conviction in my own gut. Because prior to that, I was like, but everyone's got ideas. You know, mm. Why would I be any different? Yeah. yeah. So with credit cards, 
I think it's quite interesting because it seems like an industry because it's got so many huge institutions behind it. It seems like the kind of thing where I think to the average person, it would be a really difficult mountain to climb and quite a high barrier to entry. I mean, if I had the idea that you had, I don't even know where I'd start on how I'd execute that. So how did you take it from a situation where you maybe had the idea, you thought, I do have something that does look like some form of a USP. How do you actually literally make that a reality? Because I would have no idea. I had no idea either. (laughs) It was... Oh, it was really, really hard initially when you kind of just looked at it going, where do I start? And then there's a saying that I've once heard someone say, which is like, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And I think a bit of it was just going like, well, what have, what do I have to get right to make this work? And so you're completely right. It's really complicated. You've got one, the regulatory permissions, which are not easy to get. So FCA consumer credit permissions are very difficult to get. They typically take up to 12 months. Okay. You need to have capital. Uh, you can't just go and apply for one. So it's a very rigorous process. You then need to build the technology for it. And so you have both the complexity of a card and debit cards or credit cards are not easy to build as a card product. So a product working on the network plus a way to manage billing. Why are they not easy to build, by the way, just to cut in there? Um, Because to make things work... So I'll go backtrack. There's a lot of platforms out there that can get you a debit card online in minutes or in weeks. To make something work well is not that hard. To make it work 99.9999% of the time is very difficult. So mm. if you think about something as just when you tap your card at a terminal, you need to respond within literally seconds to say, yes, we should authorize that transaction or not. And in the meantime, you need to check, hey, are there any fraud rules? Have we done enough sort of identity verification on that particular transaction? Um, does this customer have enough on the credit line? And you need to do that and reliably do that all the time and keep in mind, you only need the card to stop working once for a customer to be like, oh, I don't trust them anymore. So getting that working all the time and it's real money. So you have very little margin for error to make mistakes in terms of, oh, I missed that transaction. Oh, that's a bummer. Like, mm. no, no, you have to reconcile that this is real money moving around as well. So you know, the second part is actually the building like the core banking, the payment processing, the card issuing. There's a lot of platforms out there, but if you ever ask anyone who works in this space, it's when you pull back the layers, getting it working 99% of the time, pretty easy. Getting it working 99.999% of the time, mm-hmm. really, really difficult. Right. And it's the edge cases. I mean, we had issues where, sort of fast forwarding a bit of it, but you know, we had issues where a car didn't work at a terminal in Bermuda at a hotel. And we're like, why? I don't yeah. know why. And it was specific to this terminal. Right. And okay. so like, we're right, like, well, okay. we don't know what happened. Yeah. So you had like really weird... It's kind of like debugging with software engineering. It's yeah, like, exactly. You just have to figure it out. But yeah. you don't do it for a specific terminal and you need to be at the physical terminal to get... Because some of the logging data doesn't come back to you through the right. network. So, you know, doing edging is really difficult. And then the third thing is... Um, can I ask what happened, by the way, with that terminal? Um, we actually never got to the bottom of it in the end, actually. We right. found it was... We found that it was most likely intermittent. Um, and these happen all the time. But we spoke to these card experts that literally their entire career was about card issue triaging and they would tell us about one time they were in Canada and found this fuel dispenser in the middle of nowhere and they had to like download the firmware for it and then get like the log for it and it was this really complicated (laughs) process and a lot of it is because a lot of this is very terminal specific Um, if you've ever worked in cards you'd be like oh why don't you pull the network logs well like it actually never hit the network it failed at the terminal so we were like well what happened there got it Um, I think the third thing as well is you don't need to finance the credit card as well so we're not a bank yeah most banks finance it through their balance sheet, which is banking deposits. Mm-hmm. So we then need to finance that. So we then have to raise debt as well. So it's this really complicated thing where you only want to build 
a really great consumer product that is a great value proposition, has a great brand, which is hard to do full stop. You then add on regulatory side, you then add on building really complicated tech that has to work very reliably, working you know, with real financial sort of transactions so you can't make mistakes. Yeah. And then thirdly, you then layer on you know, having to raise debt and equity capital. So we have to raise both equity capital from yeah. traditional venture capital as well as debt financing to finance the yeah. loans as well. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it was just chipping away at it, just asking lots of people how they did it. And there wasn't, there wasn't very many in the UK to look at, but people had done personal loans before. So we're like, okay, how do you do a personal loan? Because credit card is sort of a personal loan. So how do people do that? So that's got the credit underwriting, the regulatory permissions, the debt financing. And then how do you put a card? Well, how do you put a debit card? Okay, now you just kind of stick those together. Mm, <laughs> that's kind yeah, of like yeah, the yeah, simplified yeah. way of doing yeah, okay. it. Yeah. Um, but I, I still remember when we first did our first planning session, me and um, my two co-founders were in a room in this tiny little crappy co-working space. And we had this like butcher sheet of paper saying, okay, plan to build credit card. And it was like, Q1, build core banking. Yeah. <laughs> Q2, make cards work. Yeah, Q3, yeah. build app. Q4, launch. <laughs> okay. Now, in fact, is that nothing went to plan. But it was, yeah. in a way, we were just sort of like, okay, let's just give it a go okay. and start chipping it out. And, you know, I was really fortunate to have a phenomenal CTO who just started, you know, testing different card issuing platforms. And even very early on, had just like built a virtual card on this sort of sandbox environment. I was like, okay, I think I know how this starts to work. My housemate actually worked at MasterCard. So we had dinner yeah, and we're yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Okay. hey, you know, Divya, I've got this question on like, how does this sort of auth clearing yeah. process work? What are the sequences? What are the edge cases? How does got this... It online authentication work and she would like explain it to me over dinner and that was yeah. always really useful to just yeah, have yeah. that um, it's kind of like you had to build like a multiple you had to go through the journey of building multiple startups in one in a way yeah because you've had to cover so many different verticals that's interesting how did you decide which challenge to tackle first i mean you mentioned sort of just chipping away in it but obviously that's such a huge overarching hurdle uh in terms of those those sort of three areas that you broke down how did you decide which areas to tackle first so one of the common approaches in startup world is just launch as fast as possible, yeah. do a landing page, do like a smoke test, get expressions of interest. That's really great normally, but when you start to eat regulated products, it's a bit trickier. Mm. Um, the regulator does not love you advertising a product that you don't have the license for, mm. even if it's just a smoke test, landing page test. So we were very much very mindful of that. So we were like, okay, the first thing we need to do is we know that the regulatory permissions take at least a year to get. Okay. So go and start the process as soon as possible. That's like the long pole process. No matter how fast we build the product. It can't be quicker than a year. It can't be quicker yeah. than, yeah, in our regulatory permissions. So, and what was the prerequisite to actually get that permission? So a very, very long application. I think we submitted five to 600 pages oh, wow. of okay. a business plan, financial forecast, okay. your CV, reference checks, your an analysis of your skills and growth areas, your wow. governance structure, your target customer, your product um, policies, so every single policy you can think of to run a financial service company, whether it's anti-money laundering, responsible lending, conflict of interest, you have to write all those down and have a policy written out. So that's probably quite helpful for you, though, just in terms of actually breaking down the business plan and actually establishing exactly which part of it you need to, you know, focus in on and, and develop. Exactly, yeah. Mm. So it, it was just we just literally locked ourselves in a room for a month, and I say it quite literally because it was. I think we said we want to submit it by the end of this month. I think it was in February of 2021. And we're like, we are not leaving this office until we submit this. And I think it was like 3 a.m. when we clicked on a click submit. Yeah. And it was just, let's just 
make this a number one priority because we know that no matter how fast you work, you still need to wait for the process. Yeah. And the FCA had a huge backlog. So it would take them at least a couple of months to even pick up your application. Right, okay. mm-hmm. So you need to just get that in yeah. to the front door as fast as possible. But you need to make sure the quality is really high because you want to make sure you get authorized on the first go as well. So sure. first thing to do is get that done. Um, second thing we did was start to, we sort of kicked off two streams of work. One of them was build the team. Like we knew in terms of our skill set. So Harry, my CTO is a phenomenal backend engineer. Mm-hmm. He's not as good as a front end like mobile engineer. So we knew we had to hire a mobile engineer. I like to think I can design, but I'm not a good designer. I'm a product person, not a designer. So I'm like, okay, we need to hire a designer because I really want to design at the forefront of our product. We were also across us. So I'm sort of a product sort of finance background. My CTO is a tech background. My chief risk officer is data. And sort of the, we call him the gray haired financial service person as well. And we realized that we were missing missing the marketing person in the team. So the first thing we did was like, okay, here are the sort of skill gaps in the team. Let's start kicking the hiring off for those. And then in parallel, start working on the tech choices as well. So, you know, unlike a lot of like startups, we can't just bootstrap a credit card in your garage. Like you need to work with MasterCard. You then need to work with, a provider who can get you access to MasterCard, so they're called like bin sponsors or, or banking as a service providers. You need to work with a card processor. You need to work with an anti-money laundering provider. So there's a whole bunch of like suppliers okay. we had to start to figure out who would we work with. And so, quite frankly, the first month, it just felt like I was just in commercial negotiations every day because we I think About. we picked 20 suppliers in the space of like two months. And it was this balance of cost versus quality versus how much cash we had in the bank. We didn't have a lot of money at the time either. How much did uh, you have actually? At that we had about 850Ks. We did okay. like a pre-seed raise. Okay. Um, so, you know, we had to, we, we raised our pre-seed without any product because, mm. well, we had a very simple proof of concept, but we didn't have a card you could use on the network. We needed sure. way more capital than that. And so we, we raised 850K. Um, Where did you support. find those investors? Sorry, yeah. just curious. On the 850K, that's not a small amount to raise without even having a product to show. Yeah. So curious to know where you found those investors. So fundraising was definitely not an easy process i think oftentimes you look at tech crunch but you only look at the success stories you don't mm. meet the and then other founders who didn't raise funding um i would say you know it took us probably about six months from thinking about fundraising to actually closing around and we were really fortunate to get really great t1 investors but part of it was i just had no idea how to fundraise like no one teaches you how to fundraise and most people aren't born knowing how to fundraise either and so Initially, I was just fundraising really badly. So I would just cold email investors. They would e- they would ignore my email. I didn't have a pitch deck. Oh, I didn't have a very good pitch deck. Um, I you know, didn't know how to pitch the company. A lot of them were like, why don't you have an MVP? And you're like, well, I can't get an MVP because I don't have a license. And it was a really frustrating chicken and egg problem, sure. quite frankly. And I think it was, I probably had started to go down to the bucket of like literally just asking family and friends, being like, I just need some money to get started so I could build an MVP and then I could raise a proper venture capital funding. And so I think at one point we had about 80 grand from my mum and dad, my sister and brother-in-law, my co-founders, mum and dad, brother-in-law, my third co-founders, mum and dad, brother-in-law, sister. It was just like whatever we set together, housemates, literally just scraped together like 70, 80K and we're like, look, this is enough for us to get going. Let's see if we can kind of raise money from angel investors. And at that point, Again, I, I didn't know how to raise money. And then I had a friend that I went to business school with. So I did my MBA in London. And I was told you should talk to him. He's really good at fundraising and he knows how to do this. 
And so I spoke to him about my fundraising approach and he goes, what the hell are you doing? And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, that's not how you fundraise. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? You know, a lot of VCs are like, you know, build a relationship with us, get to know us. And he goes, no, you have to create urgency. You need to create a process on how you fundraise. You need to have like a clear approach to fundraising. And actually he was the first person who just sat me down and explained to me how you actually fundraise. Like it's a process that you run. It's not a thing you just do. You mm. should have a set of people you want to speak to. You line all the meetings up. You speak to all the people in the four-week time. And you say, I'm speaking to many other investors. And you say, I'm going to close the end of the month. And no one had taught me that. I thought you just keep banging on the doors until you get money. And he goes, no, 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 this is the process. And he was actually one of the first to actually give us money. He's not like a friend and my mum and dad, basically. And he coached me through a process of, one, how to fundraise, two, introduce me to a lot of great investors. Uh, and we first got started by finding really great angel investors. So two of our angel investors, Will Neal, Michael Pennington, who are very prolific fintech angel investors, were the first investors in Yonder. And they then opened up the door to venture capital investors and you know we were really fortunate at the time we actually had multiple term sheets we had actually a lot of funds to pick from and a lot of it was ultimately finding funds who were waiting for someone to build this company which is quite different so it was almost like i wasn't pitching the company i was pitching the team Mm -hmm. they already had conviction on the opportunity and that's quite different because i thought you had to pitch the idea Mm -hmm. and the idea matters to an extent but actually what we were really pitching was there is an opportunity the product could look very different but actually we're the right people to build this and build this category leading business and that was the that's probably when the like light bulb clicked for yeah. me so were you competing against other companies that were looking to do the same thing at that point in time which is why there was already an appetite in the vc world sort of i think there was you know if you look at consumer fintech there's been a plethora of like successful consumer fintechs over the last sort of 10 years so i think there was a general feeling that consumer fintech is an exciting place to invest in. I think it was one of the sectors with the highest venture capital investment in the last sort of couple of years. And I think there's the other feeling of, well, look, if you look at the current account side, you've seen great challenger banks being built there. If you look at money remittance, you've got the likes of TransferWise or WiseNow, Remitly building great businesses there. If you look at Buy Now Pay Later, you had Klarna, Affirm, and so you kind of go through different sort of verticals in the financial product stack and you go, okay, what about credit cards? What about insurance? What about mortgages? And actually you start to see a huge wave of insurance companies being built as well, insure tech companies as well. So I think there's this general feeling across the board that, cool, could be something exciting being built here. I don't necessarily think we were competing with a bunch of other companies pitching because there weren't that many pitching, to okay. be honest. Like There were like three or four other credit card startups in the UK right now. It's just a really difficult product to build. Sure, so most people yeah. aren't stupid enough to do it, I guess. Uh, it's about, yeah, I think a bit of it was they were already had done a lot of thinking in this space. And so the conviction was less on is there a market opportunity? And the conviction was more on would you guys be the right people to build it? I'm with you. Yeah. In terms of the pitch, were you going into these rooms with these investors when you secured meetings? Were you pitching by yourself or, or with your other co founders? Only by myself. I think we found between three of us. I actually quite enjoy it. And it also meant that the other guy could just focus on building the product and building the company. And actually to this date, that's how we do, we do fundraising. They don't do any of the fundraising. I do it. They focus on building the business. The problem is we can't just stop running the business when I'm fundraising. So mm. we keep the business going. And it sort of suits the personality. You talk to Thies and Harry, they're like, I never want to do fundraising ever. <laughs> I'm so glad you're doing it. Um, they might come and join for the final sort of investment committee. But at that point, it's more of a, 
hey, they're real people. Yeah. You right. can read them, yeah. but it's less of them pitching. The obvious uh, worry I would think about in that is that what if you get asked something that's too technical or too financial that isn't your area of expertise and something, how do you answer that if they're not there? How would you tackle that? Uh, to be honest, I know myself to the level of a VC asking it. Like right. they're not, and actually I would say that because I was pretty heavily involved in building everything from scratch. Mm. Like I know quite a little all the way down to the ISO codes we get from MasterCard. I'm pretty familiar with what we get and trust me, no VCs understand what happens on the ISO codes <laughs> in the network. So I feel like I have enough deep knowledge across credit underwriting, you know, financial crime, you know, how financial services, how credit card unit economics work, as well as how our credit card works as well. To be able to answer, I haven't, at least I've never had an issue where I couldn't answer a question. Do you have any advice on how to successfully pitch those kinds of rooms? I found the biggest thing for me was actually just not using a pitch deck. Interesting. Mm. Part of that for me was, well, actually I'll go back to that. I think the, the pitch to the investment committee is actually not the most important pitch. The pitch is the initial coffee chat you have, the walking meeting you have. Those, are, for me, are the most important meetings because ultimately when you get to investment committee, you've already got a general partner championing the deal. And so I'm not saying the investment committee doesn't matter, but I would say that getting that investment committee is the hard part. Actually, most entrepreneurs, if you ask them or most founders and you speak to them, Getting to IC is the hard part, like getting to that stage. It's every single call before that, they can't even get past those stages. And I think a lot of it for me was going, actually, how do I pitch really well? It's a conversation. It's not me pitching at them. And I think the best pitches I've had is like, let's just go for a walk. Let me just, let me tell you about what we're building. Let's just have a chat. Let's have a conversation and tell you about what we're building. And hopefully you get excited by it. And if you don't, then maybe it's not a good fit for you, you and I. And feeling more comfortable saying, this isn't a good fit for you as well. Because if you're not excited by it, I don't really want to work with you either. Mm, yeah, and yeah, so you're kind of getting more comfortable with just going for a walk. And I always say that, you know, if you think about it, if you meet an investor at a coffee shop, it's pretty weird if you just unleash a pitch deck and start pitching at them at a coffee shop. You kind of want to just have a conversation. Sure. And for me, a great pitch is a conversation and a dialogue. Mm. And your first meeting is to get the next meeting. It's not to try and close a deal on the spot. It's mm. to get them excited enough about what you're building, your ambition, the product you're building, the team you have, um, the mission you have, to, yeah. to get them excited by it. And I think that's much better done through a conversation than a pitch. So would yeah. you suggest when uh, founders that are looking to potentially raise funding and reach out to VCs, when they send that initial cold email or maybe even cold LinkedIn message, whatever it might be, would you recommend them sort of suggesting, I'd love to take you for coffee and have a chat with you? Yeah, I'd, I'd backtrack. I would generally say warm intros are always 10 times better than cold emails. I never have successfully had a meeting through a cold email. Interesting. But I would say, speaking a bit from privilege, because we were very fortunate to have very great tier one seed investors. So they, they did all the introductions for me to any other investors. And most of the conversations I've had are generally funds reaching out to us. But I would say the chicken egg problem is, well, how do you get Started. That was what I was about yeah. to ask. But, yeah. you know, and I remember the the first thing I thought about was like three years ago was like, okay, you need to get one of intros. I'm like, how? I don't have a network of investors to speak to. I just exhausted my existing network of friends and said, do you know anyone? So even for me, it was just, I had an MBA classmate and said, hey, you worked in this VC fund. Can we chat? And the, the friend, your friends are more likely to just help you out as well. Now, none of them ever invested in the end and none of those funds ever worked out but at least it just got me into the front door to start having these conversations as well. Mm. But I'd always say warm intros are so much better. As maybe, you know, people can say that cold intros, you know, cold emails do work. 
they probably do, but I think your hit rate's going to be much worse. And these investors, I mean, they get like 10, 50, 100 pitches a day. How do you filter through the noise? And even me on the recruitment side, I get a lot of people just calling me about jobs at Yonder. And there's just too many now for me to read every single one and like really go through it. And so you end up using like heuristics, which is like, if it's someone I trust, refer someone to me. Okay, like, you know, I'll definitely want to have a conversation sure. with them. I don't know if it doesn't feel fair. And I recognize that I think a lot of the diversity issues in VC is because of this problem. But I also, you know, if you're a founder, I think you just have to recognize that this is currently how the game works. And so getting into it is much more powerful mm. and just exhaust every part of your network. I mean, literally, it got to a point where I think I, I emailed my wife's tutor <laughs> who knew someone okay. wow. to like give me an intro. And that was still better than just cold emailing. Yeah, uh, sure. And it was, it was hard to do it that way, but I think it's still better than just trying to do it cold. Um, what advice could you give to someone who's going through a funding round or looking to go through a funding round in terms of actually valuing their company and trying to decide how much A to give away and B, you know, how much they should be raising. I think valuing the company, just go back to fundamentally the market decides at early stage. I'm not talking about growth stage. Growth stage is a bit different, but early stage, so pre-seed, seed, the market decides your valuation. Um, so I would generally say don't go in with a, this is the valuation, take it or leave it. Um, I would actually say work backwards though from how much capital you need and how much capital you need is what milestone do you need to hit. So if you kind of think about it, you know, pre-seed to seed is like to go and take, you know, an idea to like a product that you take to market, you know, seed to series A is you've proven product market fit, really early signals of product market fit. Series A to series B is now you've got a proven growth engine, just add capital and get more revenue and profit. All right, so think about those sort of funding rounds as proving out your thesis and each funding round should unlock, you know, should sort of at each funding round, you should have had a new proof point that you've figured out and so how much capital do you need to hit that proof point so for us it's like the proof point is have a credit card live in the market with customers using it so our pre-seed needed to be large enough to get us there now there was like sort of theoretical maximums you know sure you could get 10 million but like no no what's the minimum amount of money you need to get that proof point of customers loving your product or just having early signal we didn't have we didn't need to have proven product market fit we just need to have early signal that people would really like our product and then i think in terms of dilution quite honestly a bit of it is market dynamics right now you know pre-seed seed 10 15 20 maybe up to 25 max is sort of the standard market terms uh, and then really it's just down to negotiation and if you think about it if you start with round size you then figure out you know a dilution you're comfortable with that determines your valuation anyway so mm-hmm. uh, especially the early stage, i think at late stage it's very different and i think for most people here if you're like a series c d company it's a very different sure situation and also now revenue multiples public market multiples start to matter a lot more and i think that's quite a different game there hey guys i just wanted to take a second to talk about our sponsor for this episode furniture box furniture box is an online furniture retailer that makes awesome products for everywhere from your bedroom to your office now we actually had monty and dan the co-founders on our show that's how we met we loved their story and we hung out with them afterwards and we knew that we wanted to work with them And here's the thing. One of the biggest issues I have whenever I've ordered furniture in the past is that certain big name furniture companies, not naming any names, will charge you a fairly large fee 
for delivery. And even then that delivery usually takes a few days, if not longer. With Furniture Box, not only do they offer free next day delivery, but they're now planning on extending their delivery cutoff even more so that you can literally order a dining set as late as 8 p.m. and be eating dinner on it the next day. So to put it simply, there's no one in the UK furniture scene that's doing anything like what they're doing. And we're thrilled to have them as our sponsor. So click the link in the show notes and check them out. Now back to the episode. Obviously, now that you've grown and you've, you know, you've got employees, how many employees do you have now? About 30. About 30. So obviously, there's a lot of talk about, um, about workplace culture and especially, you know, during COVID and after COVID, the whole discussion about how companies, you know, incorporate various forms of culture into their, into their company. What does culture mean to you? I think culture for me is the unwritten rules of how things happen around the team. And I say how things happen is how work gets done, how conflicts are managed, how people build relationships, whether they ask for permission, whether they don't, like how decisions get made, how meetings get done. Like literally how things get done is the unwritten rules of how things get done. And I think I'd separate culture and values, you know, or, or you know, or company principles. I think they're slightly different. They're, they're related, but not exactly the same because company values are generally more explicit, more written, but your culture is somewhat organic. Um, a, a really great analogy one of our investors gave us which is culture is like a patchwork quilt each square looks different but when they come together they all form a beautiful pattern and mm. so i think this is feeling I of like co- coherence but yet difference and so when we think about our team every single team member should be different we don't want all the same people but it should have this sense of coherence when you take a step back and go ah oh, it looks so coherent um so i think there's an alignment on values, alignment on how things get done, alignment of how we solve challenging problems. I think one of the things that I find frustrating when people talk about culture is like a fun place, a nice place to work. I'm like, those are great, but those are just like fundamental things that every workplace should have. I think culture is more like, how do you solve a heated debate? That for me speaks more to culture. How do you solve an issue where someone doesn't get along with someone else? How do you deal with someone who's underperforming how do you do someone who's performing really well? For me, those speak more to culture because I think when things go well, that's not a true test of culture. I kind of like, like this idea of like, you see the purity of something when you put it in the fire and actually you see the purity of culture when it's going through tough times. And I think, you know, for us, I think I personally am excited most about the culture when the team have risen up together to challenges. Most of when things are going well, I still love it, but... I don't think that's a true test of culture until you've really seen like the team go through really tough things together. Mm. Speaking, are you going to say something? No, 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 no. Um, Speaking on those really tough times that you just mentioned, what have been some of the lowest points of the business? I mean, I think one time was when we were thinking about raising our Series A. We were doing really well. We'd launched sort of in April last year, had a lot of customer love, a lot of engagement a lot of chatter about our Series A, you know, let's talk about your Series A in the summer. And then, like, the public markets just collapsed in May. And we're like, what? And literally, you know, if you look at sort of NASDAQ, FTSE, all the public markets just collapsed. Tech investment became, you know, a really difficult place to raise money. Uh, Fintechs, consumer fintechs, became went from the most loved industry to, like, the most hated industry in the matter of, like, months. And all of a sudden, you go to the team and say, hey, we've all been working really hard, by the way, it's not good enough anymore. We now need to like 3x that. And by the way, this is no one's fault here. That's just the reality of the market. And it seemed pretty unreasonable. Like if you worked on the team, all the team worked super hard. I mean, everyone was working six, seven days a week, doing huge amounts of overtime to make sure we like 
deliver high quality product. I mean, the whole team was on 24-7 customer support for the first eight months. Wow. And that sounds like really sexy when you're like, yeah, our team like raised the challenge of 24-7 customer support. But getting paged at 3 a.m. in the morning when someone's mm -hmm. like, my card's still not working is not fun. It gets really old. We had two backend engineers on call and they would literally be on shift one week on, one week off. And they would get paged at 3 a.m. in the morning, like all the time. But that's real testament to your both recruitment process and also actually the people that you've employed. I mean, mm. to, to be that dedicated to a business from that early on, clearly testament to the people that have, that have joined. But obviously, you've, you know, finding that in those people and only hiring people that are willing to actually commit to that. Yeah. And honestly, I think people complain, but to the extent of this is tough rather than being like, it's your fault. It's like, no, no, we're all in this together. We're all trying to make this work. You know, we have definitely done a lot of work now that we're slightly larger to spread the load around a little bit more. But you know, these are tough. Like doing on call for six months in a row is just not fun. Right? Mm -hmm. There's only so many yeah. times at 3 a.m. in the morning when you're like, yay, startup building, this is really fun. You're like, I'm getting really tired of this. I'm just going to sleep. Yeah. Well, so on that note, what is your hiring process and what, what kind of things do you look for when you're looking to expand? So I think um, two things. So we look for technical competency, but being, I, I describe it as like top decile talent. Which I know this sounds very obvious, but actually really, really hard to... Hi, fine. I'll explain what that means in a minute. And then values fit. So do you act and have you shown in the past that you've acted in line with our yonder principles as well? And we, we evaluate you on both of those. And so our process is we do a hiring manager screen. We treat it as like a two-way interview. We do a technical interview. We do a values fit and then typically a case. Those are all done by different people. So typically you will be interviewed by at least six, seven different people. And then we do a consensus. And so essentially we will all sort of do one, two, three, thumbs up, thumbs down, and then provide the feedback. And the idea is that you try not to bias different interviewers' um, sort of feedback because it's all done independently. And you say yes, um, yes or no. And actually we've failed people who were great technically but failed at least fit, for example. And actually many have failed for that reason. Uh, the hiring manager has full autonomy there. They can ignore the feedback, but generally they want to ignore the feedback. And we also do reference check. And reference check is not an optional thing. It is this is a core part of your mm. interview process. So it's not a, oh, you know, normally it's a, you get a job offer subject to reference checks. It's no, 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 you don't have a job offer. We are now doing reference checks. We will then decide whether you have an offer or not. And actually, we generally don't want you to have good references. We generally want to get to a point where we understand that you had, when I say good, I mean, we want to get a full picture. Everyone has strengths and weaknesses. Everyone has areas they need to grow in. Our goal by the end of the interview process is to have a full picture of who this person is and we're not looking for the perfect person. We're looking for someone who recognizes what they're great at, but where they need to grow as mm -hmm. well. And part of our reference check, we actually want to get feedback to know they're really good at these areas, but these are the growth areas they have. Mm -hmm. And I would generally say we don't stop, we shouldn't stop asking for references until we have gotten to the point where we go, oh, I know their growth areas. Because for me, going, it's all good is actually not helpful. Yeah. <laughs> because I don't know how to grow that person when they join Yonder, because joining Yonder is step zero. Growing at Yonder is the most important part of the journey. And so we want to know where your growth areas are and do you recognize them. Um, so yeah, it's kind of like, from a process-wise, it's not particularly innovative. I'd say it's definitely similar to interview processes of the likes of Google or other tech companies. I think one thing that we've, I think we've done a great job of is spending time training our team on how to interview really well. So every person who interviews one would do an interview training and two would pair with a more experienced interviewer and then have a bit of a debrief on like questions they might ask and things like that. So we really want to get people to think about how they interview as a skill and also focus on depth rather than breadth. So meaning each 
sort of person you interview. So let's say I'm interviewing you today. My goal is not to get through 20 questions. My goal is to get through like one question and then go really deep on it. It's like, why did you do that? Tell me a bit more. What mm-hmm. happened? Like, well, how did it make you feel? Because they're in the same so way. Like in therapy a in a way. Mm-hmm. Kind of sort of, because I, I, I care more about not so much just what they did, but like why they did it. And one of the things that we look for is like trajectory and trajectory meaning like how fast have you sort of grown in your skill set. That doesn't mean pure levels and titles and salary, but it does mean development. And generally, I would say generally, we can pick up pretty quickly whether someone can demonstrate that they've learnt over the last two years and, and have a really steep, sort of steep learning, like sort of steep growth curve. Uh, and I always say like everyone at Yonder should have a really steep growth curve because Yonder will grow really fast and we need everyone to grow faster as individuals and Yonder is growing as well. Mm. And so always looking for demonstrated examples of that and you can definitely see that because if you go through someone's cv and you pick up different sort of you know classic behavior questions like tell us the time you did this but you pick up different ones and you go back and you'd hopefully see progression in their development through that mm. and the red flag for me is actually seeing no progression mm. uh and so you know we spend a lot of time going, hey tell us about the biggest skill you've made but what did you learn from it tell us what you learned because I, I don't care about whether you made a mistake i want to know how you use that data to then inform how you make decisions in the future. It also makes it way harder to bullshit if you go deep on one question rather than, you know, Definitely, a lot of people, yeah, lot of people you, can, you, can, you can suss that out pretty quickly. Yeah, you can yeah. blag 20 surface level yeah. questions, but if you get quizzed on one question for 20 minutes, it's hard to bullshit your way out of that. So that's a, that's a really good process. We interviewed someone a while back who said uh, them, the two most important departments in their company were recruitment and HR, so just hiring and firing because he said that will be the core of like what makes your business like win or lose. Um, on the back end of that then, um, in terms of letting people go, how do you handle that process and what advice would you give to people when it comes time to that? And how do you know when it's at a point where it's time to let someone go and when growth isn't, isn't an option anymore? So I think there's a couple of lens of it. There's the legal lens. There is the... And then there's sort of the, the, the principle and then there's sort of the execution. I'll kind of talk about this all separately. Um, so the legal one first. Firstly, there are strict employment laws around firing and I would always highly recommend get legal advice. We've had to like go in the past and so... One of the things we do is like, just make sure you have the correct process. Um, it seems trivial, but a lot of startups just kind of cut corners and that can bite in the ass two years down the track. Second, one, the core principles we had was we want to make sure we keep the talent bar really high at the company. And so this Netflix term like talent density, we want to make sure that everyone is there is superstar, like amazing. And actually our belief is that a person who's just average or below average is even if it doesn't, you know, from a total cost, salary cost isn't that high, is actually net worth for the entire culture of the company. So we would rather let them go. Um, and so actually, the sort of, sort of building that sort of couple of principles, um, we would rather leave a role unfilled than filled with someone average, which means that we will take short-term pain over filling a role just because of a need. So we actually won't fill roles because we have business need. If we don't find the right person, we will just suck it up, push through until we mm. find the right person. Secondly we would generally err on if it's not working out, make the decision quickly, but be generous with severance. So we don't want to leave someone in a personal situation where they're financially sort of struggling. So offer them really on a generous severance to be like, look, it's just not working. You can go on the formal performance review process. You can go, you know, that sort of performance improvement on a PIP, or you can take a generous severance. And for us, the idea is that, look, I have in my... 12, 13 years of working experience have never seen anyone go from a pip to becoming like a superstar. At best, they become average. And so, and we don't want average people. So, I thought, look, 
this doesn't work out. We ca- you came to the pip and you're legally permitted to go on the pip, but we don't think you know necessarily you're going to thrive here. You'll survive, might not thrive. Here's a generous severance to help you go find another job. And so we kind of offer that really early on. And part of that is because I still take the responsibility of our decision to hire them in the first place is our fault. So if we hired them and they didn't work out, that is on me, that is on my management team, that is on a hiring manager for not finding that person. And this person has quit their job, joined you, and has taken the risk. Mm. Therefore, it is our fault that they're not the right fit. Therefore, we should make sure we financially support them, help them find a new job. It doesn't mean they're bad. It just means mm. it's not a good fit. Um, and then I think... Yeah, and then thirty five process wise, I think we've just had to be a lot more structured with it. So we take notes down. We have a people team of currently one, but you know we're very strict on like just making sure we have all the facts. I think it's not something you should take lightly, but also it's, it's something you should sit on your toes for for too long. So part of it is just write all the facts down, make a decision very quickly, speak to the person as quickly as possible, and write a script. So this is the one time when being ad living improvising is not recommended follow a strict script because you want to make sure that you're very sensitive to that person's needs Mm. um you know i would definitely say we're not expert on this there are entirely great blogs on how to fire well Mm. uh i think there's a really good book called trillion dollar coach and i think he talks about how to like hire and fire really well and part of it is it's a skill you need to get good at um we haven't had to to do it often but I would just say, like, for us, the core principles remain there, which is we only want a team that is excellent. So, therefore, we will exit people quickly if they're not yeah. working out and not excelling. But we should personally care for them. So, therefore, make sure they are financially supported as well. Mm. Um, I wanted to touch on the, the scaling process in between the 850000 that you raised on the kind of pre-seed um, through to the Series A that you recently completed of 60, 60 million. Um, can you just kind of summarize that that process a little bit and how you actually got from, from point A to point B? Uh, from people's side, like... Actually, it's just, yeah, there's, quite, there's obviously quite quite a lot there, but I'm just curious to know like how how you would go about scaling both obviously the team, but also the sort of product market fit and you know the revenue and, and that side of it. Yeah, so I think to everything... To such a successful degree. Yeah, everything sort of pre... I'll talk about it in terms of milestone rather than in terms of funding round because there was a period of time where funding rounds were all a bit all over the place. Like we raised our seed of 5 million sort of six months after we started. That's not necessarily because we hit milestone, but because there's a lot of momentum in the market. I'll say probably a better one would be certain milestones. So I think the first milestone was just getting the product in market. Um, that for me was the smallest possible team. Like keep your burn really low. Mm. You're still trying to figure out what to build. You're still, you know, you need to have enough people to build quickly, but you don't want too many people because you don't want to keep your burn rate really low. So we were like a team of seven people, you know, in this really, really cheap co-working space. I mean, Every time a bus went by, the whole building shook. I think our rent was two grand a month for rent. You know, it was super cheap, yeah. but it was all about keep burn low, build as fast as possible, super lean team, be really scrappy. And at this point, you know, we actually had pivoted the idea multiple times. Originally, it was credit card for expats using open banking. And now we're like a lifestyle, you know, rewards credit card, help people discover the rest of the city. So we actually pivoted a couple of times in our first year. The thing that... So yeah, they so say the first milestone was build as fast as possible, keep really lean team, be really scrappy, and take that sort of Y combinator approach of just build something customers love, find 10 customers who love your product. That's it. I was like, we don't need to find 1,000. We don't have to find 10,000. We need to find 10. 10 people who are like 
this product is awesome. And so we would do user testing and um, Craig and I would came up with this framework, which says, so like classic, classic sort of market research is, hey, how likely would you like to, how likely would you like to buy this product? Strongly agree, agree, disagree. The problem is like everyone lies, right? Like I was like, yeah, yeah, strongly agree. And then like, you know, to this day, I still haven't bought that product, right? So like people tend to overestimate their likelihood of doing something uh, in the same way that like, I'll go to the gym four times this week, but it'll probably be twice because I'll get lazy. And so there's this sort of cognitive bias where you will always overestimate things. And so market research for me, or the traditional sense, is very difficult. Um, plus, traditional market research, you need to have a large sample size. You know, 20,000, 30,000 people, you then get statistical significance. I don't have money for that. That's like 60,000, 70,000 pounds of market research money. I don't have 850,000 pounds. I don't have to spend all my money on that. So what we did was we scrappily just found customers. So he so what we're doing, we kind of ran two streams of work. So one of them was just build our core card product, which we knew we had to build full stop. So our CTO ran that stream, which was like build the core product. And that was no matter what type of product or variation we would have, we would most likely need to have a card, most likely need to have a core banking ledger. We need a way for people to pay us back. So like just go and build that. So we ran that stream. Then we ran a second stream, which was like, what would the value proposition look like? And we literally just found people to do user interviews. And this is the really scrappy way of doing it. I went to Reddit forums. I went to Aussies in London forums. I went to South Africans in London, Malaysians in London. I literally just found every single expat group because originally we were trying to target expats and said, right. hey, we'll give you 20 pounds. We don't have much money to chat with us. And then we, at the end of the interview, we would say, hey, do you have anyone else we should speak to? And so then they would help us recruit other people to speak to. Second thing that we did, which I think worked really well, was we wouldn't ask them, what do you think of the product? At the end of the interview, we would say, so do you have any questions for us before we end? And people who weren't interested will be like, okay, great, have a great day. Good luck, guys. The ones who really were interested were like, is this product available now? How do I sign up? Is this a live product? And so we kept doing that for months. I mean, I think we interviewed about 250 people in the first year. Mm. And we kept iterating the proposition until people started saying, is this product available right now? How do mm. I sign up? And I'm like, Okay, there's something yeah. here. Which is also something. way better than doing a hard pitch because you're giving them the chance to ask you about it, which is far less invasive and less aggressive. Yes, exactly. I think at one point I tried another technique which did not work, which was, would you sign up to sign up today? And it was good in that it solved the issue where people would say, I'll do that next week, which means they'll never do it. Mm. But then it put too much pressure on it and mm. it just didn't work. So I think the openness of, do you have any questions for us? you kind of generally felt really early on whether someone was like really interested or just very polite. We had a lot of polite people like, yeah, good luck. And that one's, you know, they have zero interest in your yeah, product. Yeah, yeah. Or the best one was, when is my voucher coming in the mail? Or when's <laughs> I have an email and you're like, okay, not interested at all. Yeah. So that's sort of like first year, build as fast as possible, find something that we think would have customer love. Um, we then grew the team slightly. We, you know, we hired member support. We hired another engineer. We hired um, someone who won finance. And then we launched. And at that point, it was all about just find 10 customers who love us, and, but actually use the product. And product was in, I'd describe it as full on alpha mode. Our first card had so many issues with setting the pin where we were, I think two days from launch and we still couldn't get the pin working uh, to a point where like you would order the card, you set the pin, the pin didn't work. You'd have to go to ATMs, withdraw money out, nothing, nothing worked. And our card processor was like, oh, you need to do it this way. This will work. And I'm like, okay how do I test this? And so we literally ordered a card. My chief risk officer drove to Tewkesbury, which is about two to three hours drive, picked up the card, went to Tesco, tested it and goes, 
guys, it works. I think we're good to go. And then drove back. Yeah. Literally to test the card and it works. And we had, you know, I mean, literally customers had to originally take money out of an ATM to get the card working. We had issues with our pins weren't syncing with the card on the physical card properly. Okay. Um, and we then just asked family and friends to try the product out. The product was buggy. It had so many problems. But like, just get your hands on it. Give us feedback. Um, my wife was like, this product is so bad. I don't want to use it. I'm like, please just, just use the product. And... True love. (laughs) But but eventually it was like, okay, cool. The product's working, at least like sort of working. And then we did a big press launch and that goal was to go, okay, the card sort of works. Now I'll click on test, you know, whether people like the proposition. So we did a big press launch and sifted. Uh, We then had a wait list and we just started inviting people. And at that point it was literally just treat each customer like gold. That was the, the motto was every customer is gold. So I would email them personally. I would give them my personal WhatsApp. I'd say, hey, welcome to Yonder. Here's a Slack community. Here's my WhatsApp. Message me if you have any questions. You know, we'll literally handhold them through the journey. And we kind of had to because we had so many bugs. Most people couldn't even complete sign up. So we had to like push them through. And we joke about it being the happy path, which is this smooth path where you got to sign up and it went straight through. But the second you went off the happy path, you went up like four-wheel driving and it was like, we had to send search and rescue crew to find you because the app just had so many issues when we first launched. Um, and it was really at that point just going, can we find like customer love here? Are people talking about us? And for the first couple of months, it was just find customer love. And initially it was a struggle, but then we started to just see people really love the product. And the two kind of moments for me where I was like, well, onto something was we had a members event and like, you know, 50, 60 customers just turned out. At this point, we had like 300 customers. So like, this is a lot of customers turning up in Wandsworth to just hang out with yeah. us, telling us how much they love the product. And the second thing was just looking at a daily active use. So if you build any consumer product, one of the first things you look at is your DAUs and your first 100-day retention. And we had like a flat line, like, you know, 70% DAU in the first 100 days. Every single day, 100 day, uh, first 100 of the first 100 days was this flat line, beautiful product market fit, uh, really high usage, and people just like loving the product. Um, problem we had at the time was they were all on a free trial. We had no idea whether they're going to pay for it. And I went in circles a hundred times saying, should we get rid of the fee? Should we keep the fee? Should we get rid of the fee? Should we keep the fee? And I remember telling a head of design, a head of finance being like, I think we should get rid of the fee. And then head of finance is like, can we not do that now? We haven't like, how do we want to make money? Mm. Um, and because the whole point of having a fee was we could then fund a lot more generous rewards. We wouldn't have to rely on interest as our only way of making money, which is a core part of our Yonder mission as well. And so we're like, no, let's just hold. Everyone just relax. Just let's see how it goes. And, you know, way more people stayed and continued to pay than we thought. And we're like, wow, onto something. At that point, we're like, okay, we've now got early signal product market fit. We're growing at a pretty steady pace. But we felt like people were talking about, you know, telling their friends, using their product and we're paying. So for me, that was like good signal of like early product market fit. Yeah. You know, what we didn't have was a proven growth engine where you just add capital and you'll get this much revenue. But we had early signal. And that kind of leads into our Series A now where we're like, we've got something that we know is working really well. We want to now scale that. And now we're learning how to scale that. And scaling that is both customer acquisition, scaling your core operations and how you run the company and also scaling the team as well. And have different, those have different challenges. Do you think everyone should get a credit card? I think if you know how to manage your finances well, Credit cards are much better than debit cards. Why? Because a couple of like very practical reasons. One, you're not spending your own money initially. So you can pay it off all the time. You can pay it off daily if you want to. But if there are any issues with like a hotel authorization that's coming out of your bank account, credit card authorization that's coming out of your bank account, if you have a dispute 
it comes into your bank account first. So there's a whole bunch of like liability risk that you're protecting yourself with a credit card because you just pay it back later. And if it's disputed, you don't get charged on your bill. Secondly, if you want to buy a house in the future, one of the things lenders will look at is your credit history. Using your credit card well is a really positive signal for future lending products, so mortgages, car finance, things like that. Um, so be better on the credit history. Um, thirdly, just rewards are much better. Um, credit card exchanges higher, so they can offer more generous rewards as well, so you get more benefits with it as well. Um, and then lastly, just cash flow management. If you pay it off in the interest-free period, you don't pay any interest anyway. And if you have any emergencies as well, you've got an emergency buffer as well. So good example, my co-founder, fortunately his father-in-law passed away and funeral expenses are not cheap. And he has money, but they had a lot of cash flow shortages. And so having a credit card actually meant they could smooth the cash flow out. My flights back to Australia are like four and a half thousand pounds. That's wow. a lot of cash. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Like, because I fly back during Christmas and my wife and I. And so actually putting a credit card means that I can pay it off within you know, the, the interest fee period because it doesn't cost me any interest, but helps me manage my cash flow. And if I want to borrow for maybe two, three months, that's a really good way of managing borrowing for a short period of time as well. I would say credit cards are really good for day-to-day -day spending, cash flow management, emergencies, credit score building, and for protection. Not good for long-term lending. Mm. So I would always recommend do not use credit cards if you want to borrow for long-term. You might, unless you use maybe like a balanced transfer, which has 0%. But in general, their personal loans are designed for long-term borrowing. So I would say all these financial products are really, really important for different jobs you're trying to solve in your life. Personal loan for like a longer term, large ticket item, buy now, pay later for a distinct item that you want to borrow for that one item, a mortgage for a house, car finance for a car, credit card for cash flow management, day-to-day -day spending. So different jobs to be done, but actually very mm. valuable. And if you think about it, if you pay off your credit card, let's just call it, you paid off daily, that is on net better than using a debit card because you get the rewards, yeah. you get credit score building, you take no risk of, of spending if you paid off daily and you still have the emergency buffer if you need it as well. Mm. Um, now, I think some people are just like, I don't know how to manage my finances too. Or the temptation is too great. And I recognize that for some people that's not appropriate for mm. them. So I think for if you can't use it well, um, then that is a product that I would say you should probably just stick with a debit card, but then you need to worry about overdraft and then worry about other lending products as well. So mm. I'd say there's no magic bullets. Um, I think with most financial products, there is neither good nor evil. They're all tools and tools used well are really great. Tools used badly are really harmful. And I use the analogy with the team all the time that credit or, or, or any sort of financial product is like fire. It's really powerful for like, if you use it well, like heating, fire is great for heating, cooking, combustion. Like there's so many great uses for fire. And on the flip side, it can be very destructive as well. It can burn you, it can um, cause a bushfire, it can burn a house down. Fire is neither good nor evil. It is just an innate sort of tool that can be used for both good or evil. And I'd say the same thing about credit cards and yeah. most financial products as well. I think that's an amazing point to round off on. I do agree. That was really, really Agreed. clean. Um, Tim, thank you so much for the interview, man. Um, before we go, we like to ask all of our guests the same question at the end of every episode, um, which is obviously, as you know, we focus on the practical. Uh, so if you were to give one piece of advice to anyone who's looking to start a business or has already indeed started one, uh, but one piece of advice focusing on the practical, actionable side of things, what would you say? Take the time just to build the right team. That's co-founders. That is the early team that you hire. Your early your co-founders will hire your early team. Your early team will hire your next set of people on the team. They will hire the next people on the team. They will set your culture. 
most people get it wrong, not because they don't want to get it right, but because they are impatient. They're not willing to go through the grind of interviewing hundreds of people. And they want to solve the short-term problem today, not recognizing the long-term, I call it people or organizational debt they take on as well. So start with team. I think every single great company is built on a great team. There is no successful company that was built with a bad team, in mm. my opinion. And yeah. What a great piece of advice. advice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jinx. Jinx. yeah. <laughs> um, dude, thank you so much. The floor is yours. Plug away. Where can people find you? Um, so we can be found at www.yondercard.com and we have six month free trial at the moment. So give it a try um, and hope you love the product. Amazing. Perfect. Thank Tim you. Tim Chong, thank you so much for being here, man. Really appreciate it. Guys, awesome interview. If you enjoyed it, make sure to like and hit that subscribe button and also turn on post notifications so you never miss any of the interviews that we've got coming up. But for now, Tim, thank you so much for being here, man. Appreciate it. Thank you so thank much. You.